Romans chapter eight, verse one to four. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Scott, for the warm welcome. Again, my name is Matt Terrell, and、uh, it's really a privilege to be with you this morning.、Um, Scott is a friend and a pastor that I greatly admire, so it's it's lovely to be here.、Um, And、uh, since what we just read is God's word and not my own, would you pray with me for a moment? We'll ask for His help. Father, left to ourselves, we cannot rightly hear you, cannot see you. We do not have hearts that are ready to receive the good news of your word, and so we ask that by your word and by your Spirit, you would. Open our ears and open our eyes and soften our hearts. Make us ready to receive the good news. It's in Jesus we pray these things. Amen.、Uh, so what we just read from Romans eight. Romans eight. It's the beginning of a chapter that's kind of like the Grand Canyon of the Bible. It's not the only place in the Bible where this is true. There are a number of places in the Bible where the the riches, the the vastness. The expanse and the beauty of God's grace to us in Jesus are on full display, and Romans eight is one of those places. It's it's a place where we are invited to come and sort of peer over the edge, in wonder at what God has done for His people through Jesus. And so we're going to just take a few minutes to look at just a few of those verses, Romans eight one through four that we just read this morning, and in particular. The aspect of God's grace that we're going to look at this morning is something called justification. Now, that word may not be familiar to you, or maybe that is like an old word for you, and you're you're like, oh great, here goes another talk on justification. But hopefully, over the next few minutes,、um, whether you're familiar with the term or not, that this idea of justification will become much more wonderful to you.、Uh, we're going to look at it from three angles: the problem, the solution. And the impact. It's a good Presbyterian sermon. There's three points: the problem, the solution, and the impact. So first, the problem. I was reading a few weeks ago、uh, because I am a Presbyterian minister who likes to read obscure things. I was reading about cognitive mental bias. It is essentially the science、um, that has revealed how our brains tend not to actually think rationally. Some of you probably study. Like you're a psychologist and you study cognitive mental bias, and you're getting nervous. Hopefully, I represent what you study well this morning.、Um, but our brains tend not to always think rationally. Instead, they primarily process information in ways that help us to confirm the things that we already believe, whether or not those things are actually rational or true. So, if you already believe that the world is flat, or if you already believe that the sun revolves around the earth, your brain works hard. Not to rationally discover the truth about those things, but to confirm 
um, to formulate arguments to support what you already believe to be true. And there are a number of different types. There are like different categories of cognitive mental bias. And one of them is called fundamental attribution error. I promise I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me. Fundamental attribution error. Here's how one article describes it. The fundamental attribution error refers to the fact that human beings very strongly tend to attribute good things that happen to us to our own efforts and bad things that happen to us to external factors and vice versa when it comes to other people. So when I don't get a promotion at my job, I blame the system. No one could have done better in my circumstances, but my boss gave me all the hard jobs. But when Steve over there doesn't get the promotion, however, I blame Steve. Lazy, incompetent, problematic Steve. The fundamental attribution error thus allows us to maintain the view that we ourselves are thoughtful people who are basically wise and good actors, even if there is evidence to the contrary. And it encourages us to judge other people as basically foolish and difficult actors, even if there is evidence to the contrary. See, what the science of fundamental or what the science of cognitive mental bias is revealing to us is that we are all hopelessly selfish. We are all selfish. Sure, we are, we are capable of kindness. We are capable of generosity. Um, but underneath the surface of our efforts to be that ray actually runs a deep river of self-interest. We're, we're hardwired this way. Now, why do I mention that? I mentioned that because our passage this morning begins with what I think maybe to some of us sounds like a dusty, uh, like outdated, old, antiquated religious word, condemnation. It was right there in verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think for a lot of modern folks, a lot of Western people, um, that we read that word and we were sort of like, eh, so what? Like, Okay, no condemnation. I'm not sure I was worthy of condemnation in the first place, right? We, the idea of condemnation, of God's condemnation being removed from us by Jesus, it may not resonate as the wonderfully good news that it actually is. And the reason is because we tend to think that we're not that bad. We tend to think that we're not that bad. We think we're mostly good people who goof up every now and then. So the idea that we might be condemned, that we might actually rightly deserve God's displeasure or his judgment, it sounds silly at best, or at worst, it sounds like God is just childishly overreacting. He's got his priorities all out of whack. But what the science of fundamental attribution error is telling us is the same stuff the Bible has actually been telling us all along, that on a basic and fundamental level, we are self-interested. We are self-serving creatures in a way that we can't really seem to change. And this isn't just merely like a harmless quirk of being human, it's actually a deadly spiritual disease. Think about the worst atrocities in human history, the Holocaust, the Crusades, the genocide of people native to this continent, the kidnapping and enslaving of African peoples. And what is at the heart of each one of those? Fundamental attribution error. To, to at least one side says, I am in the right and they are in the wrong. I am the one with the noble and worthy cause worth fighting for, and they are the foolish ones or the evil ones, the ones whose lives are less than mine. And then horrible evil ensues. 
This bias is a deadly spiritual disease, and it infects all of us. And the name that the Bible gives this disease is sin. And sometimes we think of the word sin as referring to an individual act, some particular choice that I make. Um, and, And that's not fully what the Bible means by the word sin. It includes our choices, but it's much deeper than that, because sin in the Bible is a condition. It's a state of being. It's the spiritual disease that turns us against God and against one another. Simeon Zoll, the theologian, he puts it this way. He says, sin is a way of describing the fact that there is a fundamental flaw in the human system, and it is an explanation for why that system keeps throwing up errors. In other words, it is a description of the fact that there is a fundamental bias against flourishing that appears to be written into our hearts. We have to think of sin as a condition. It is like gravity, only it causes enormous suffering. For the first three chapters of this book, Romans, of this letter, this is Paul's main point. He spends three whole chapters arguing this case. And then he concludes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what he's saying is we're all infected with this disease. We're all naturally turned against God and against one another. We do not live our lives in love towards God and in love towards our neighbor. We're actually selfishly curved in on ourselves in ways that dishonor God and harm our neighbor. And the consequence of that disease in us is that dusty old word that shows up in verse 1 of our passage, condemnation. Condemnation. We are, we are in the presence of this disease in us. It has put us at odds with God. We have made ourselves his enemies. Our default is to distrust him, to attempt to live independently of him and against his design, to use the things and the people that he has created for our own selfish ends. And you may say, yeah, I just don't see it. I just, I don't think I'm that bad. And that's kind of the point. It's fundamental attribution error. We can't help but see ourselves as better than we actually are and see God as worse than he really is. And so we're infected with this sin and deserving of his condemnation, and that's a real problem for each one of us, myself included. So what's the solution? There's a couple of different ways that we can try to solve this problem on our own. One is merely by our own effort. We we can get to a verdict of no condemnation by our own effort, I can outrun my guilt by doing better if I work harder, if I'm serious enough about justice, if I'm serious enough about the Bible, if I'm serious enough about prayer or evangelism, then I can restore myself back into right relationship with God. I can get to a verdict of no condemnation. Or if I feel bad enough for long enough about the ways that I have failed, then I can restore myself. I can get out from under condemnation by the seriousness of my repentance. That is how God will accept me. But our own passage says that won't work. It won't work. Verse 3 says the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do this. Our own efforts, because of the infection of the disease of sin in us, it can't get us to a verdict of no condemnation. Whether it's the effort to be better or the effort to feel bad enough for our failures, it will always fall short. Our flesh and the ravages of the disease of sin in us have rendered us incapable 
of getting out from under condemnation by our own effort. So that strategy doesn't really work. But the other strategy that I think we often employ is elimination, not effort, but elimination. And what I mean by that is just eliminate the standard. The reason you feel guilty, the reason you feel bad about yourself for the things that you've done is because your standard is too high. It's outdated, it's antiquated, whatever, just get rid of it. This is sort of the modern Western way of getting to a verdict of no condemnation. If, if you feel bad because of what you did last week, or you feel condemned because of what you do in the shadows or what happened at work, or Western culture says, it's, it's really not a big deal. The problem isn't you, the problem is the standard. And if you just get rid of the standard, then voila, you've solved your problem. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. Condemnation is gone. But here's the problem with that is that while that might help you deal with the feelings of guilt temporarily, it doesn't actually solve the reality of guilt. If you get in your car this afternoon and go flying through a school zone at 75 miles per hour, you're probably going to lose your license. And you might feel guilty about that. And maybe you could convince yourself, well, you know, it's a Sunday, no one's in school, speeding laws, you know, cars are different than they were a long time ago when the speeding laws were created, so I should be allowed to just drive however I want. It's not that big of a deal. You might be able to get rid of your feeling of guilt. You might not feel bad about that anymore, but the reality of your guilt would still be the same. Your license is gonna still get revoked. Those two things are different. The, the feelings of guilt and the reality of guilt. And so eliminating the standard doesn't actually solve the problem underneath the problem. You might feel better temporarily for a little while, but ultimately you're still guilty. You're still condemned. So neither of these solutions will work. And Paul says the only way to get to a verdict of no condemnation is not through your effort and not by eliminating the standard. It is by exchange. It's by exchange. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So let's pay really close attention to what Paul is doing here because he's packing a lot into these few words. Who, who is the one who is doing something here? Who's acting? It's not me. It's not you. We are not the ones that remove condemnation from ourselves. Who does it? God has done, it says. God has done. And what does he do? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, this language of flesh, we've touched on this a little bit already. It's Paul's shorthand for the disease of sin and what and its effects on us. He's not referring to physical flesh, but, but spiritual flesh, our spiritual disease. And he's saying because of the spiritual disease of sin, we could not do what the law required. We couldn't, we couldn't meet the standard. We do not and cannot live lives that are pleasing to God. And so how does God respond to our spiritual helplessness? How does God respond? Verse three, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Don't miss this. God responds by sending Jesus to become the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus, the perfect likeness, the perfect image of God, instead on the cross becomes the perfect likeness or image of sin. And he was condemned for it. 
the righteous judgment for God, the condemnation falls on him as he is in the flesh. Why? Verse 4 continues, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us. In, in the sinful ones, in the diseased ones, get counted righteous in Christ, not through our efforts and not through the elimination of the standard, but through the exchange with the Son. That, that what belongs to us, what belongs to us becomes Jesus's on the cross. And what belongs to Jesus becomes ours. Jesus gets treated as we deserve so that we can be treated as he deserves. There's a pastor in St. Louis. He put it this way. It's one of my favorite ways of of thinking about this idea, the wonder of justification. He says, imagine that you have an enormous amount of debt. Perhaps it's a few years after you have graduated from college and your school loans, your student loans are coming due. You've got a mortgage. You've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of of credit card debt, just immense, soul-crushing amounts of debt and you get a call from your bank and the bank is like hey um you need you need to come in we need to have a conversation about what is going on and of course you're like you're going to dread that meeting but you understand why that conversation needs to happen and so you head down to the bank and uh the teller greets you as you're there and he's like oh yes yes we've been expecting you please come sit over here and he sets you off to a cubicle off uh, you know in the dark corner somewhere and and you're waiting right and then finally the teller comes over And he says, yes, I'm so glad that you came in today. We're going to go ahead. We're going to just cancel all your debt. We're just going to cancel it all. We'll pay off your mortgage. We'll pay off your school debt. We'll zero out all of that credit card debt. If you just sign right here, you're free to go. Now, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. A huge weight would be lifted. But two things would be true of you you as you walk away from the bank that day. The first thing is you're broke. You got nothing. Your debt is gone, but you don't have any money. You don't have any credit. And the second thing is that bank never, ever wants to see you again. They will never want to do business with you again. So imagine you're walking out of the bank and you're, you're, this is sort of dawning on you, right? You're feeling the, the lifted burden of like the debt is gone. But then it's, you're starting to realize, oh, I have no money. And I have no way of getting money. I have no credit. I, got, I have nothing. And this strange woman comes running out of the bank. And she's like, excuse me, excuse me, stop. You can't leave yet. We've made a mistake. And so she brings you back into the bank. And as you're walking back into the bank, you come to find out she's the president of the bank. And you're like, oh, no. I'm in huge trouble now, right? And so she brings you back to the the secret elevators in the back, and she ushers you up to her office. It's at the top of the building. It's like a movie scene, right? What you would imagine a, a bank president's office to look like. There's like mahogany everywhere and a big leather couch. And there's a, an oil painting of her on the wall because she's the president of the bank. And she says, here's, here's, we've, we've made a huge mistake. I'm sorry, the teller, it was his first day. He didn't know what he was doing. It was a, it was a big problem. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and sit behind my desk. And I just need you to sign right here. And, and you are going to become the president of this bank. And all of the assets that belong to me and to this bank are now going to become yours. That's justification. That's justification. Everything that belongs to her now belongs to you. See, mere forgiveness is great, but it says you can go now. 
You can walk away, but you have no business here anymore. But the exchange of justification says you can come in. Everything that's here belongs to you. And that's what Paul is describing here. That's how he can say so joyfully that for those who are in Christ, there is right now no condemnation. Because everything that was yours, all of your sin and the condemnation that it deserves, it got laid on Jesus on the cross. And everything that belongs to Jesus, every moment of his perfectly loving life and all the love that the Father has for him, it's credited to you. You are as loved now by God as Jesus always has been. That's the wonder of justification. So, what is the impact? What is the impact of that wonderful good news on your life? Here's the best way I know how to put it. The best thing that will ever happen to you already has. The best thing that will ever happen to you already has. God has taken everything that belongs to Jesus and freefully, freely, joyfully, graciously signed it over to your name. You are as loved by God now as Jesus always has been. And that changes everything. That's the best thing that will ever happen to you, and it changes everything. It changes the way that you relate to God. His acceptance of you is not conditioned on your performance. It was never based on how well you perform. So you cannot do anything to make him love you less because you didn't do anything to make him love you in the first place. And you cannot do anything to make him love you more because you are as loved now by God as Jesus always has been. So that means that now you can obey him out of gratitude, out of joy not to get him off your case or to win his approval. Now you can repent to him boldly when you sin because he already knows the worst of it and he's removed all of your condemnation and welcomed you in. It changes the way you relate to God. It changes the way you relate to yourself. Some of us have a really loud inner critic. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know maybe all of us, at least some of us, have a loud inner critic. And sometimes it's hard to hear anything other than the voice inside us that's constantly berating us, telling us, you're not good enough. You're worthless. You're a fraud. It's just a matter of time before everybody figures it out. But the wonder of justification, it sets us free and it gives us powerful ammunition against that inner critic. Because when your critic comes to you and tells you that you're horrible, or that you're embarrassing, or that you're disgusting, you can politely agree. You can politely agree. You can say, yeah, yeah, you're half right. You're half right. All that stuff died with Jesus. All of it died with Jesus, and it does not define me anymore. I am as loved by God now as Jesus always has been. And so, like, you don't need to bring that stuff up. Like, you can have a better conversation with your inner critic because of this reality. Because Jesus was strong for you, you are free to be weak. Because Jesus was someone for you, you are free to be a no one without bitterness. Because Jesus was extraordinary for you, you are free to be ordinary, human-sized. Because Jesus succeeded for you, you are free to fail. It changes the way you relate to yourself. It changes the way you relate to God. Lastly, it changes the way you relate to other people. 
If you are as loved by God now as Jesus always has been, that means that you are free from trying to win the approval of other people. You're free to humbly listen to and even serve those who wish to do you harm. You don't have to be defensive. You are free to genuinely and sacrificially love. We, we love because God first what? Because he first shamed us? Because he first condemned us? No. We love because God first loved us. You can pour yourself out for the good of others because Christ has poured himself out for you. You have everything that you need. The best thing that will ever happen to you already has. I'll close with this. Um, A number of years ago, we had a young woman who was a part of our ministry, and she came to faith in Jesus during her time in college, and she was here in the city to train to become a dancer. And just about every dancer or aspiring dancer that I've ever met here in New York City eventually um, has told me about how cruel and how condemning the world of dance can be. Uh, it It is a condemning place. It condemns you about your performance. It condemns you about your body. It condemns you about your weight. And as she was reflecting in a conversation that we were having about how her life began to change after she came to faith in Jesus, this is what she said. She said, food became food again instead of my enemy. Men became men instead of my worth. Dance became dance instead of my master. And life was worth living for the first time. This is what happens when the good news of justification gets down into your bones. Everything gets reoriented and it changes everything. It was true for her. It's true for me. Thank goodness. It's true for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news. It is indeed wonderful. Uh, As we peer over the edge of it and look into its vastness and its beauty, uh, would you help us to be haunted by it in the best way? That it would be the sort of thing that we can't forget because it's so good and so wonderful. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen.